Shalom, Shalom. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. I'm delighted to hear that you are drawn to the Jewish root that supports the grafted in branches. You know, Torah is central to properly understand and perform the will of Hashem, that is, God. It is crucial for us to understand theologically that the primary purpose in Hashem's giving of the Torah as a way of making someone forensically righteous only achieves its goal when the person, by faith, accepts that Yeshua, Jesus, is the promised Messiah spoken about therein. Welcome to Parashat Bukudei Accounts. The address is Shemot, Exodus chapter 38, verse 21, through chapter 40, verse 38. The reading date is for Shabbat, and I'm the author, Torah teacher Ariel ben Lyman. Note that all quotations are taken from the complete Jewish translation by David H. Stern, Jewish New Testament Publications Incorporated, unless otherwise noted. The written commentary was updated on March 7th of 2006. So let's begin with the opening blessing for the Torah. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech ha'olam, asher b'achar b'anu mikol ha'amim, v'natan lanu et Torato. Baruch atah Adonai noten ha'torah. Amen. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe. You've selected us from among all the peoples and have given us your Torah. Blessed are you, Lord, giver of the Torah. With the parashat uh, before us today, Pukudei, um, we've reached our final parashat of the book of Shemot, the book of Exodus. Remember that as I've explained to you, the word Shemot, the name chosen for the book of Exodus, is the plural form of the Hebrew word Shem, which means name. Thus, Shemot means names. We've discussed some pretty significant names in the book of Shemot, if you think about it. Uh, we talked about uh, the name of Adonai and how it is to be revered, and how it can be, um, it can be difficult to understand how the sages of old took the name of Adonai and hid, hid it from uh, the general public use, so that the name was not spoken aloud. And how that we've also seen that Yeshua came to reveal the name of his father to his disciples. Whether or not that was the literal name, or was the very character of his father, uh, I won't be dogmatic either way. Either way, we do know that um, the name should be spoken with reverence. What's more, we also learned about the name of the Messiah in the parasha in our studies uh, during this um, cycle of the book of Exodus. And we talked about how the name of the Messiah captures the fullness of God's salvation, Yahweh's salvation. And so again, the name of our Lord should also be spoken with all the reverence that it's due. The parasha today is relatively short, and like its previous portion at times, it's read with parashat vayechil in regular years. So what happens is, um, in order to make sure that we uh, maintain the reading schedule for the entire year, and at the same time allow for the special readings that are usually uh, centered around the festivals, the moedim, 
such as we have coming up pretty soon within the next few weeks we've got um, we've got Pesach Passover coming up so in order to maintain the integrity of a reading for the weekly schedule as well as for the festival we have to double up on the weekly reading sometimes and I believe that's what's taking place um, with Parashat Vayechiel and Pekudei during the year of 2007 it's interesting that the name of our final Torah portion is translated accounts um, although the portion centers on the accounts of the building of the Mishkan um, I want to make a play on words for my commentary today and conduct an account, as it were, of the entire book of Exodus, kind of a sort of um, a final summary, if you will, of, of our study of the book of Exodus. And so what I'm going to do for the students is I shall use selected statements from each of the ten previous portions to accomplish this accounting. However, prior to going there, I want to re-examine a feature of the Mishkan that I centered on in a portion from the book of Breshit, the book of Genesis. Because like me, you might sometimes need reminders of important spiritual truths. It's always good to go back and, and study things over and over again uh, because the Lord shows us things um, new and afresh each time we study them. Um, I feel that both of these formats, both the accounting as well as the reminder, will be highly beneficial to our readers, both old readers as well as those who have just recently joined um, the weekly Torah portions. The completion of the Mishkan signaled that the Shekhinah, now the Shekhinah, if you remember, is the manifest presence of God, um, and the completion of the tabernacle signaled that the glory of God was ready to come and dwell among his people. Remember in Exodus chapter 25, at the very beginning of Parashat Trumah, God told Moshe that if you build a tabernacle, I will dwell among them. Vashakanti uh, Botocham. And in this Botocham, uh, uh, dwelling among them, the, shage, the sages of old um, uh, make notice that the word Botocham um, really should read Botoch among, uh, I will dwell among it, or I will dwell among them, the people of Israel. But Batoham is really translated, I shall dwell within them, or uh, not among them, but within them. And so this is a really neat insight if we consider the spiritual reality of what we come to understand once the Messiah comes to live within us, then the very God of the universe dwells within us. And perhaps we're seeing a glimpse of that in the Mishkan. To be sure, when we read in our current Torah portion in chapter 40, verse 34, we read this pasuk, this verse, quote, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of Adonai filled the tabernacle. Moshe was unable to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud remained on it, and the glory of Adonai filled the tabernacle. End quote. Just as God promised, if you build it, I will show up. If you build the tabernacle, I will dwell among you. Pastor Mark, my own mentor, is fond of reminding me that um, the passage doesn't say, if you build it, I will dwell within it. And again, he's picking up the exact same thing that the Chazal, the sages, picked up, and that's, if you build it, I will dwell among you, or, quite literally, I will dwell within you. But what an awe-inspiring sight this must have been, to see the glory of God fall on the tabernacle, and reside in a kind of a spatial way, not a not special, but in a space occupying fashion where even though the Ain Sof, the, the un the one without borders, um, cannot be contained in any mere uh, uh, human um, a compartment made with human hands, but rather God allowed himself 
to be centralized, as it were, within the confines of the Mishkan, and particularly between the wings of the Kuruvim, the, the, um, the cherubim. But what a terrible reality it must have invoked uh, for the people of Israel to realize that God is among us. Because within the Mishkan was the room called the Kadosh Kadoshim. Uh, I'm sorry, the, the, the holy place, the Kadosh. Uh, and just beyond that was the chamber known as the Kadosh Kadoshim, the Holy of Holies. And within the Holy of Holies we find the Kaporet, known in Christian circles as the mercy seat. And this was also kept in the holiest place. The, uh, uh, the, um, the, uh, uh, the Holy of Holies was really surrounded by the holy place. So we have circles of holiness, as it were. This is where, if you'll remember, the blood of the Yom Kippur sacrifice, or the offering, was presented once a year. A word picture, which of course was designed to teach us that Yeshua would have, uh, would have to die only once during the entire span of human history. Um, to separate the most holy place from the holy place, um, we had a very thick cloth curtain that separated these two chambers, one from another. And it was between the curtains that the Kohen Gadol, the high priest, uh, was permitted to make his entrance during this time, during the um, feast of uh, Yom Kippur. In fact, according to our account here in, the, uh, in, the, in our parasha, um, his robe, the high priest, his robe was actually fitted with golden bells and pomegranates all along the lower hem. You can look up chapter 39, verse 22 and 26 to see this feature. Now, these were alternately spaced so as to create chimes with his moon. And with every step he took, the pomegranates um, came in contact with the bells, and perhaps we heard some, uh, some ringing. Um... um I'm not finding it at the moment. I'll have to look it up for you later, but um, where it talks about that, that the uh, cord is put around his um, uh, around his ankle so that when he ministers before the Lord, he will not die. Uh, I apologize, I'm not sitting in front of my computer right now. I'll look it up a little later on into the study, but um, let me go ahead and go back to my commentary. What I, what I mentioned is that the cord spanned his steps as he went from one chamber the holy place into the next chamber, the Holy of Holies. And should the assistant priests on the holy side of the curtain cease to hear the bells chiming, um, they were instructed then to pull the dead Cohen back from the holiest side. My point is that they would not enter in after him. They understood that the offering was not accepted uh, on that day, if, if that were the case. Rather, it was re rejected. And, and what a wonderfully fearful and absolute holy God we come to realize that we serve based on the instructions that God gives us. Now, actually, <clears throat> um, I don't believe Judaism has recorded any time ever that the uh, sacrifice was not accepted. Whenever the high priest went in, God accepted the sacrifice, and therefore the Kohen, the high priest, uh, always came out, uh, even though they had the precautionary measures of the bells, the pomegranates, and the uh, rope tied around his um, ankle there. By now you're probably saying to yourself, thank God for Yeshua. And in reality, your thoughts would not be inappropriate. For had it not been for our great heavenly Kohen Gadol, the entrance to the holiest place would forever remain accessible only to the high priest. And that's why the thick curtain separating us from the mercy seat hung there. And it would forever hang there to keep unholiness out. Because we have sin housed up within us. And... Um, it is our uh, 
high priest Yeshua who takes that sin from us and allows us to enter, as it were, into the holiest of holies. But let's go back to that curtain for a moment. There's a lot of um, mystery surrounding the curtain. Allow me to reminisce a bit, all right? Um, this next section is entitled, A Father's Grief. In the book of Genesis, when the report got back to Yosef's father that his son had suffered harm, Yaakov rent his garments, that is, he ripped his clothing in two, and he went into intense mourning for his favorite son. You remember the story? Likewise, in the New Covenant, um, we read of a rather odd occurrence surrounding the death of Yeshua. Matthew records for us that the temple curtain separating the holy place from the most holy place was ripped in two from top to bottom. You can reference Matthew 27.50 for that verse. And most of you have heard it taught that this symbolized the access that we as believers in Yeshua now have to the throne of God, which the mercy seat kept in the most holy place represented. Okay, And I'm not going to disagree with you. This is true spiritually, that, that the curtain separated us or was there to, to make sure that we did not cross over, uh, as it were, into the holiest of places. Um, but what I'd like to do is make a midrash, a homily, and also a hint, a remez, from this occurrence. I'd like to spin my own tale for a moment. In the days of the Tanakh, whenever a father lost a beloved son, such as um, Yaakov and, um, and Yosef, uh, the father would rip his garment to signify his intense loss. Uh, his rending of his garment visually testified of the agony and of the ripping of his soul as he would never experience earthly fellowship with his beloved son again. In fact, for an example, you can see Second Samuel chapter 13, verse 30 and 31, to see Melech David's reaction to the news of his death, of the death of his son uh, Avshalom. Now, today in modern Judaism, at the loss of a beloved family member, the immediate family that is to say the father, is known to cut a small portion of their lapel, which is symbolic of ripping the entire garment. They don't usually rip their entire coat these days. They just take out a razor blade and cut uh, the lapel on the jacket. Now, I believe that the temple curtain um, that was ripped in two in Yeshua's day, it represented, quote, the garment of God. And I'm not too far from my um, supposition there as if you were to um, look up in the Talmud uh, in certain places as well as the Zohar, um, the mystical um, book used by uh, the Kabbalists, you'll find that the curtain of the tabernacle is in fact referred to as the garment of God from time to time. Well, it, at any rate, when his beloved son died, uh, the father wanted to send a clear and unmistakable signal, I believe, to all that witnessed that this was indeed his beloved son. So, like Yaakov in Parashat Vayeshev, Hashem also ripped, as it were, his garment to show his intense suffering at the loss of this son of his. You think that's a neat little um, uh, comparison that I'm drawing there? I think it's rather neat myself. I imagine that when Yaakov's brothers witnessed the display of sorrow in their father, that they too must have felt some guilt and shame in their, of course, hidden dishonesty and their lack of family justice. Moreover, taking that same lesson and carrying it over into my midrash, when Yeshua's tormentors witnessed the temple curtain rent into two pieces, they must have also felt shame and remorse because of their recent dishonest activities. After all, um, it's now been shown that the first century trial that Yeshua went through was a sham. It was, it was a humbug. It was, it was, a, it was, it was a farce. Uh, it was not a fair trial. 
Someone of that first century community must have seen the correlation between these two familiar acts of mourning. I mean, if I'm seeing it here today in the 21st century, surely someone with more knowledge of Jewish things, uh, more knowledgeable than I have, uh, has surely made the connection as well. I trust that today you, my students, now see it as well. So, with that, journey with me now as we go back and look at some highlighted accounts, some pukudei, of Sefer Shemot, the book of Exodus. This section is lifted from Parashat Shemot, this commentary, this next section here. Parashat Shemot. In Hebrew thought, a name implies a reputation. The name, as you will, is the embodiment of the character of an individual based on who they are, or what they have done, or perhaps even what they will become. In Bereshit chapter 3, verses 14 through 16, Hashem reveals His nature to Moshe in a way that has never been done before in the Torah up till this point. And I believe that according to a literal understanding of the verses in question, Hashem was instructing Moshe to teach the children of Israel to forever remember that, quote, yod Vavhe, quote, the God of their fathers not only is, or I am, but that he will be the God who delivers them from the bondage of sin characterized by Mitzrayim, by Egypt. And that forever they, the children of Israel, were to remember rather than forget that there is no other God, small g, beside our God, Yahweh. So in remembering, as opposed to shrouding it in obscurity, the eternal, unchanging, Echeh, Asher Echeh, they would be ever mindful of the nature and character that their one true God displayed in His mighty works. In other words, they were to forever remember His reputation and His name. In essence, His shame. This next section is lifted from Parashat Va'era. Hashem revealed an aspect of His character that would later play a a very important role in the identity of the Jewish people as a nation. The title yod heh vav heh Y-H-V-H or Adonai, would serve as a reminder to the surrounding nations that, quote, with a great outstretched arm, Adonai mightily delivered his beloved people, end quote. To be sure, the reference of Hashem as the God who delivered them from the bondage, uh, the bondage of Egypt, if you remember, would become a household title of sorts. Fast forward, if you will, into the book of Shemot to the Ten Commandments at Exodus 20, verse 1 and 2, and you'll see that you can find this phrase, um, the God who delivered you from the bondage of Egypt. You'll see this phrase um, used to identify Hashem. Thumb through the rest of your Tanakh, in fact, your Old Testament, and you'll find that this phrase is used numerous times. So, the point is obvious. As believers in Messiah Yeshua, we know that this is one of the primary character traits of Hashem which unifies the Messiah and the Godhead as an Echad, that is, as one. The name of the Messiah, as you recall, comes from the Hebrew name um, Yehoshua, which itself stems from the Hebrew name Hosea or Hosea. And both of these names, Hosea and um, Yehoshua, are composites of the two Hebrew words for God and will save, respectively, Yahoshua, um, when we combine this knowledge of the name of our Messiah with the fact that it is yod heh who offers us salvation from sin through Yeshua the Messiah, then we can begin to understand the significance of the type and the shadow that the exodus from Egypt 
plays in our lives as new creations. Very important lesson for us to never forget as believers. Let's move on. This next section is lifted from Parashat Bo. When the people of Israel were instructed to participate in the first Pesach, the first Passover, the Lord promised that whoever was obedient to this mitzvah would be spared the death angel as he passed through the land of Egypt that night. This, of course, was an act of faith on the part of the participants because, I mean, logically, blood on a house served no rational function in that day or our present day. Why would anyone splash animal blood on their house unless they had faith in something that was about to happen or faith in the spoken word of someone who was trustworthy? In this case, it was Moshe uh, speaking for Adonai. Why would anyone expect to receive a protection from death by placing lamb's blood on our house? But to Hashem... This simple act of obedience, as it were, signified a placing of one's trust in God's word. And in this case, it was the word of God through his servants Moshe and Aharon. Shemot 12, 29-33 testifies that this is precisely what happened that awful night. This monumental deliverance should have caused that people, both uh, Israel and Egyptian, to understand that faith in Hashem alone is what brings about the freedom so desperately desired in the midst of slavery. And so, I must state it plainly one more time for my brothers according to the flesh, for the Jewish people. Alright? You ready? The majority of which, by the way, are seeking to be justified by either obediently keeping the Torah of Moshe or seeking to be justified simply by being Jewish alone. Here's what I'd like to explain to them one more time um, rather uh, unambiguously, if I will. Quote, our ancestors were delivered, which is a symbol of genuine faith in the Holy One. They were delivered before they received the Torah on Mount Sinai. You get that? They were set free before they received the Torah, the law. The law did not set them free. God set them free and then gave them the law. So the sequence of the covenants, um, the, the, the covenant with Abraham and, and then later on, the uh, covenant with Moshe, the sequence of the covenants is crucial for a proper understanding of the righteousness of Hashem. This next section is lifted from Parashat B'Shalach. Yes, even though our God demonstrated mightily through the death of Pharaoh and his armies at the wall of the Sea of Reeds, that there is none like him among the gods, mighty, and that there is no other like him in sublime holiness, praises, and wonders, a, li a quote lifted from uh, chapter 15, verse 11. He is, in fact, a loving God that desires genuine fellowship and a living relationship with each and every one of his created sons and daughters. We need to keep this perspective in mind that God desires a relationship with us on a one-on-one -on -one basis uh, as we study the Torah, especially the portion that we call the Old Testament. We Christians look at the Bible and break it up into Old and New Testaments. Um, we in the church today tend to reduce the God of the old to some type of a holy terror and a merciless manslayer, while at the same time we seem to pit him against the God, that is to say his son, of the new who is much more gentle, loving, and forgiving. To be sure, I think that was one of Marcion's heretical teachings in the first century. Um, but in reality, the father and the son we know this within our minds and within our hearts. We just don't articulate it. But the Father and Son share the exact same purpose, divine will, and the same character. And we have been given a glimpse of the judgment of God in the Tanakh. 
but we have also been given a glimpse of his mercy in the Chadasha, in the apostolic scriptures. To be sure, the stones of the brick wall mentioned in, Genesis, or in uh, Exodus chapter 25, they protected the people as they made their way to safety. But the, um, the, the same stones or the same brick wall, uh, as it were, the midrash on the waters that piled up high on either side, these same waters came crashing down upon those wicked men who tried to pursue the people of God. So we can also make an application. The stone, capital S-T-O-N-E, the stone who is Yeshua, the living Torah. He shall protect and save those who believe in Hashem unto righteousness. But be warned, this very same stone shall fall upon all the wicked men of humanity and grind them to powder. This next section is lifted from Parashat Yitro. The theme surrounding the giving of the Torah, embodied in the Ten Words, is one of the most, if not the most, significant events in the history of the offspring of Abraham. Surely it carries the most impact even for Jewish folks today. Our sin nature, however, makes us prone to disobedience, as we're off to remind ourselves. The Torah of Hashem comes along and serves to remind us of how short we fall when we try to measure up to God's righteous standard. Now, while it is true that no one alive could have ever kept all of the commandments of God, it's also true that Hashem never expected anyone to be able to. He didn't give the commandments to be kept in a, a simply perfunctorily manner, where we just keep them one by one, one after another, like, like uh, dominoes falling one after another. That's not the way that God envisioned us to be keep the Torah, uh, to, be, to be Torah obedient. The Torah does not demand perfection, uh, else there would be no need for the upcoming details that we're going to read about in Leviticus concerning sacrifices for sin. So the Torah um, actually expects from its followers genuine, trusting faithfulness to the giver of the Torah, who of course is the Holy One of Israel. That's what the Torah expects of us. It expects surrender and submission to the God of the Torah, the giver of of the Torah. And today, such submission implies placing one's complete trust in his only unique son, Yeshua. The Torah is a document of grace, not law. I know it contains legal codes, it contains um, protasis and apotasis, it contains um, case law and, and things of the like. But overall, even though we see the death penalty mentioned uh, from time to time, and even though we see God's punishment um, meted out to the disobedient, overall, God is a God of grace, and we have to remind ourselves that His mercy wins out over judgment, even in the time period of the Tanakh, even with the giving of the Torah. We need to begin to understand that this is the true nature and function of the Torah, a gracious document, graciously given by a gracious God to people who don't deserve it. In fact, translator David H. Stern, in his complete Jewish Bible, stated it succinctly when he explained, quote, For the goal at which the Torah aims is the Messiah who offers righteousness to everyone who trusts, end quote. And that's lifted from Romans chapter 10, verse 4. This next section is lifted from Parashat Mishpatim. The change from Yitro to Mishpatim is dramatic. For we go from simple, somewhat general instructions to very specific guidelines that are meant to shape the people into a nation. And in a way, this marks the beginning of the Torah as a, quote, national constitution, end quote. 
Truly, these next few chapters could be called law if I were to allow it. But before I delve into each chapter, I want to briefly restate one of its primary functions and purposes in the giving of the Torah to Am Yisrael. Here we are. You ready? Quote, It is crucial for us to understand theologically that the primary purpose in Hashem's giving of the Torah is a way of making someone forensically righteous, that is to say saved, only achieves its goal when the person, by faith, accepts that Yeshua is the promised Messiah that is spoken about therein. And until the individual reaches this conclusion, his familiarity of the Torah is only so much, so much intellectual nutrition. Only by believing in Yeshua will the person be able to properly understand Hashem and, consequently, understand his word. This next section is lifted from um, Parashat Truma. Quote, Adonai said to Moshe, Tell the people of Israel to take up a collection for me. Accept a contribution from anyone who wholeheartedly wants to give. End quote. This, of course, reflects the heart of our Lord's relationship with his people. And what is that? Willingness to give. The heart of our Father is that we would um, be willing and motivated to to freely give back to Him that which we have so freely, that which He has so freely given to us, namely everything that we have. It was God who provided the people with all the gold, silver, precious stones, and and clothing and raiment that they left Egypt with. It was God who made the Egyptians favorably disposed towards the Israelites as they made their exodus from Egypt that day. Therefore, it's only natural that the people would recognize this when the time came to um, reciprocate and give those things back to God. God did not want his Mishkan constructed with gifts given in coercion. He didn't want any arm twisting. He did not want um, Moshe to instruct the people to uh, make the people give. You better give or else... No, that's not what God did. Hashem wanted his bride to want their husband to have a dwelling place. He wanted their heart. And our Lord delights in our free will, both then and now, especially when we choose him. God gives us free will, and in that free will, we can choose God, or we can choose our own way, or God forbid, we can choose the devil's way. But God delights when we make the choice to choose life and to choose God. Now if you remember again from a couple of parashot ago when the offering uh, the offspring of Abraham left Egypt Hashem put it in the Egyptians hearts to give large amounts of gold, silver and articles of clothing and precious stones as they made their escape. Now looking back and making connecting the dots from then till now we can understand uh, understand why this event took place because the Mishkan was going to be built and God already knew it. Hashem knowing the future would give his people the opportunity to see whether or not they, the people, would hoard this fortune, like so many of us today are prone to do, or whether or not they would uh, um, give it back freely to the one that provided it in the first place. Again, herein lies a lesson for us today. Many times our natural resources have been given to us to grant us an opportunity to do what? To freely contribute them back to Hashem. For what? For the building up of God's kingdom. Not for the making of ourselves a great name, people. That doesn't make any sense. That's not why God gives us great uh, resources. I know that God gives us many gifts out of the goodness of his heart. 
but he also tests us to grow us up to see if we will continually display a heart that is willing to give back to God everything if God were to ask for it. The Torah teaches that, quote, to whom much is given, much is required, end quote. The reward, of course, comes to us not as we hoard the riches that God gives to us, but when we make the wise choice to freely and wholeheartedly give, just like Am Yisrael did in these opening few verses. This next section was lifted from Parashat Tetzaveh. The whole thrust of the instructions given in Parashat Tetzaveh is a teaching on holiness. In fact, the phrase Tetzaveh shares the exact same root word as mitzvah. Uh, the root word is a verbal imperative used to express the desire for a definitive action on the part of the hearer, so that we could say that when God commands, we should be poised to do. In other words, the Torah uses this word as a call to action, the word mitzvah, as well as the word tetzaveh. God, the invisible creator of the universe, has chosen to reveal his glory in such a way as to be visible in the mishkan. And he informs us that he will take up residence, as it were, in the most holy place, which of course was between the wings of the Kruvim, which formed the lid of the Aron Kodesh, the Ark of the Covenant. Now, um, he in this parasha, he's commanding his people to become holy. That is, set apart for the specific service of conveying God's holiness to the surrounding people group. So we see that God is already beginning the plan of of witnessing to the other people groups, the surrounding nations, of his goodness and his mercy. And, of course, this begins with a personal consecration from the people. We can reference uh, Exodus chapter 28, verses 2 through 3, as well as verse 36, verse 41, chapter 29, verse 1, 9, and verses 20 through 22, verses 26 through 37. And don't forget to look up Exodus uh, chapter 29, verse 43. Hashem's holiness would not always be confined to Israel, though. We know this, again, looking back in hindsight. However, for now, Israel was the primary focus of his glory. He started with Israel, and he was going to demonstrate his holiness in Israel so that he could um, make a family for his name and establish a place for his dwelling, Jerusalem, and, and the place where he would place his name and that his holiness would radiate, as it were, into all corners of the globe. Hashem has always what I'm trying to tell you, since the beginning, since the promise given to Avraham in Breshit, chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, Hashem has always been interested in blessing all of the families of the earth. This, of course, he would accomplish through Israel. Israel was his chosen vessel, his servants, as it were. He started with one man, with Avraham, and now he's establishing the priestly line that we're going to read about in the book of Leviticus with the offspring of that one man. Isn't it ironic to notice that the ultimate focal point of Hashem's glory would also culminate in one man, the man Jesus? This next section is lifted from Parashat Kitisa. This is the portion containing the ugly golden calf incident. Yes, that's right. I call it ugly. Parashat Kitisa. And in this portion, I wanted to emphasize the fact that although Am Yisrael sinned grievously, their possibility for escaping that awful temptation was as great as is available to us today. Some people read the Torah portions and they say, you know what, they had no choice. They were just, they were just former 
desert-dwelling slaves, and their proclivity to sin was too great. There was no way they could have said no to the idolatry of the golden calf. But you know what? That's wrong. God does not tempt... Um, God does not... Well, let me put it this way. In other words, they could have chosen not to sin. All right? As the Torah demonstrated then and still teaches us today, Hashem's loving mercy is made available in abundance, I might add, despite our spiritual depravity and despite theirs as well. They did not deserve His forgiveness any more than we deserve it today. But our God is the one who's constant. And the admonition of Rav Shaul to his Corinthian reader says it all. Let's make a quote there. Speaking of the golden calf incident, um, the apostle assures them in 1 Corinthians 10, verses 11 through 13, quote, These things happened to them, speaking of ancient Israel, these things happened to them as prefigurative historical events, and they were written down, speaking of the Torah, as a warning to us who are living in the Achat Hayamim, the last days, speaking of both his disciples as well as uh, the followers of Yeshua today. Therefore, the, uh, Paul goes on to say, Let anyone who thinks he is standing up be careful not to fall. No temptation has seized you beyond what people normally experienced. Uh, people normally experience, and God cannot be. I'm sorry. Let's try that again. No temptation has seized you beyond what people normally experience, and God can be trusted not to allow you to be tempted beyond what you can bear. On the contrary, along with the temptation, He, God, will also provide the way out so that you will be able to endure. In quote. A wonderful truth for us to actualize today because you know as 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 the um, advent of our Lord Yeshua uh, draws near um, it seems like the stakes are increasing um, righteousness is maturing in these last days but you know what so is evil and it's becoming tougher and tougher harder and harder to take a stand for what is right temptation is all around us and the devil is on the prowl and he is seeking to devour the holy ones, the kadoshim, the saints of God. Now more than ever, we need to have our guard up. We need to be pressing into the Spirit of God to protect us and to guard us against those sins that so easily beset us. We need to guard ourselves against wickedness. We need to guard ourselves against idolatry, against laziness, against anger, against malice, against jealousy, against uh, uh, hatred and rage and, and lust and, and all of the things that so easily get us down as believers. We've got to gird ourselves up in these last days because God's people are going to be the ones who are going to be shining the light of Messiah in these dark and evil days. God is not going to simply step onto the scene and um, announce uh, His truth via some angel of mercy uh, like might be true in some fairy tale. God has chosen us, just like He chose Israel, to be um, as it were, uh, vessels uh, um, carrying the good news, the gospel. Um, we are the repositories of the truth and the wisdom of God in the earth today. So if, if the world is looking for truth, they're going to turn to us. And we better have the light of Jesus shining inside of us so that they can be led out of darkness and into the light. So looking at uh, the Apostle's admonition here um, about um, temptations... Now is not the time to cry, woe is me, look at me, I'm undone, um, I, you know, I've fallen and I can't get up. Now is not the time to make that cry. Now is the time to take a stand for the truth of God, for the ways of God, for the word of God, for the Son of God. Amen. That's a good time to say amen.
the um, last uh, commentary or the last uh, section was lifted from Parashat Vayechil, last week's uh, or last uh, Torah portion. And in that section, we talked about how that the sacrifices, um, which we're kind of getting a sneak preview of before we get into the book of Leviticus, right? The sacrifices performed with a genuine heart of repentance afforded real life forgiveness to the people back then. It was not some imaginary forgiveness that they were experiencing as they brought animals to the priests um, uh, day after day or year after year. Um, but these animals, the blood of the animal, only uh, afforded, uh, as it were, forgiveness to the purification of the flesh. It did forgive the individual, but it was a forgiveness of the flesh or a cleansing of the flesh. It's because the blood of the animals is mortal. And mortal blood cannot cleanse that which is immortal. We have been created with an immortal spirit, a spirit that is designed to live forever with God. And only the blood of a sinless, immortal sacrifice uh, can atone for the, uh, the uh, sins and the conscience of an individual. Um, so the temporal blood of the animals in and of themselves, and by themselves I might add, could not even take away sin give you an example. If a person living in the time period of the Tanakh uh, went out and committed a sin that called for a specific sacrifice to be brought to the tabernacle or the temple. And let's say um, he decides that he's going to bring his, his, his sacrifice, but in his heart he's still bent on sinning. He's comfortable with his sin. He's, he's not really deciding that he wants to turn from his sin. He's simply going to walk and go through the motions and walk through the steps in order to make a good show in the flesh as it were. And so if he were to bring the um, animal to the priest, and the priest were to receive it, cut its throat, catch the blood, splash it on the altar, and then uh, do with whatever the uh, Torah prescribed is to be done with the sacrifice, whether it's burn it up completely or section it up and eat certain pieces of it, whatever is to, to take place. Um, if the priest were to do that and then the, the uh, participant were to leave that day, he might think to himself, you know what, because I brought this animal sacrifice, everything is hunky-dory and I'm okay, God has forgiven me, and now I can go out and sin again. You better think again, because under that scenario, the one I just described, where the heart of the individual is still cold towards God, just because the individual brings a sacrifice, God is under no obligation to forgive that individual. And that's what I mean when I say that the animals um, by themselves and in and of themselves could not even take away sin. It's only a heart that was moved towards repentance that God would accept. God was not to be fooled, and he saw the heart of every single person who brought their sacrifices. To be sure, when we get to the time period of the um, prophets, the Nevi'im, God had seen that the wickedness of the people was multiplied exceedingly, and that they were bent on idolatry uh, continually, and their heart was evil. And even in this, this, this state of idolatry, the people continued to bring their sacrifices. You know what God said through the mouth of the prophets? I am sick to, I'm paraphrasing, I'm sick to death of your sacrifices. Stop bringing your stinking animals. I'm sick of them. I'm done with them. It's just a waste of a good animal, in my opinion. And so we know that God desires the heart of the individual. Only the eternal blood of the perfect sacrifice, to which the animals pointed, by the way, could purify both flesh and soul. Thus you could say that, in a way, the animal's blood moved, if I could speak spatially again, uh, moved, as it were, the sin from the body of the person to the mercy seat, the, um, the, uh, the caporet the earthy altar, where God would in fact grant genuine atonement 
That is to say, he would grant washing of sins in the flesh because of the reality of the heavenly altar which the earthly one uh, gained its um, inspiration and source of power, as it were. So, what we want to make note of is in, in these closing uh, few comments uh, is that the objective faith of the individual still remained dependent upon God's promised word to come, namely Yeshua himself. Yet, the obedience of the individual was demonstrated by adherence to explicit Torah commands where sacrifices were concerned. The people still had to walk into the sacrifices because that's what the Torah of, of Moshe commanded. That's what God had commanded the people to do. And if they wish to approach a holy God, they must bring a sacrifice to atone for the sins of the flesh. So it's even if they believed in Yeshua, the sacrifices were still a requirement of the Torah. You could not circumvent the sacrificial system if you wanted to remain a genuine and lasting covenant member in the days of of uh, ancient Israel. And thus, the lesson for us today is to understand that um, the obedience of bringing sacrifices back then is the vindication of true faith on the inside. To be sure, the individual that I described moments ago who brought their sacrifices with a cold and callous heart, I imagine that eventually that person would, have, would just stop bringing sacrifices altogether, realizing that, you know what, hey, uh, this is just a waste of a good animal, and, and, and heck, I could just keep it for myself and eat the flesh and, and, and utilize the animal for my own gain. Eventually, that's where a cold heart will lead an individual to where they're not only cold towards God, but they are actually disobedient as well. So, what's, what's the important lesson to walk away with um, as we look back at the sacrifices and draw a correlation between the sacrifice of Yeshua? The salvation of the eternal soul of an individual, both then and now, was always dependent upon a circumcised heart. That's the lesson we want to walk away with today, okay? It's exactly the same today. God always desired a circumcised heart. It's not that there's a dispensation of law where God allowed cold hearts and sacrifices, and then in the dispensation of grace, he now demands circumcised hearts and faith. No, it's always been circumcised hearts and faithful obedience to the word of God to gain the favor of God. There's only one standard, and it's always been the same standard. So... In that, I will conclude and say that I hope that you've enjoyed our little trip down memory lane. Our current and final portion of Shemot ends with the assurance that the Spirit of the Holy One led them every day and every night during their time in the wilderness. We often talk about the wandering Jews. Well, in a sense, they didn't really wander because the Spirit of God led them. In fact, let's look at the quote there. Chapter 40, verse 38 reads, quote, For the cloud of Adonai was above the tabernacle day, uh, I'm sorry, was above the tabernacle during the day, and the fire was in the cloud at night, so that all the house of Israel could see it throughout all their travels. End quote. Every single incident and detail mentioned above has been under the divine care and leading of our unmatchable heavenly Abba. Even the disobedience was foreseen by God. That's why God provided a means of atonement and a way for the people to be forgiven. Even our gross, surely upsetting sin doesn't escape the plans of God. Because if we place our genuine, trusting faithfulness into His loving hand, then our journeys today, like that of Am Yisrael of old, will not be arbitrary. On the contrary, 
the Apostolic Scriptures, the Brit Hadashah, promises us today that our relationship with Hashem through Messiah Yeshua is indeed on a well-planned-out course. You can look up Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 30, to see my point there. Let me conclude by stating this point. The road of faith in Messiah is none other than a course of righteousness and glorification. Hallelujah! And that is something to get excited about. Amen? Amen. Let's conclude. It's customary after the completion of a book of the Torah to recite Chazak, Chazak, Vanit Chazek, which being translated is, Be strong, be strong, and let us be strengthened. The closing blessing is as follows. Baruch ata Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam, Asher Natan Lanu Torah Temet, Vechaye Olam Nata Batochinu, Barukata Adonai Notain HaTorah. Amen. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe. You have given us your Torah of truth and have planted everlasting life within our midst. Blessed are you, Lord, giver of the Torah. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. That concludes our show for today. Remember, because the Messiah has already come, the Torah is now a document meant to be lived out in the life of a faithful follower of Yeshua through the power of the Ruach HaKodesh to the glory of God the Father. It should not be presumed that it can be obeyed mechanically, automatically, legalistically, without having faith, without having trust in Hashem, without having love for God or man, and without being empowered by the Ruach HaKodesh. To state it succinctly, Torah observance is a matter of the heart, always has been, and always will be. My name is Torah teacher Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. The intro and outro song was produced and performed by Ryan Kingsley. For information on contacting Ryan, you can reach me by email at Yeshua613 at hotmail.com. That's Y-E-S-H-U-A number 613 at hotmail.com. Or visit our website at graftedin.com. That's graftedin.com. <laughs>